Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for just the freedom to gather this morning, to live in a place where other men and women would lay down their own lives to, to give us that right, to give us that ability to, to come together and sing songs that lift high your name, to sing of your glory and your majesty. Father, we, we thank you for the, the men and women who, who have served and given the ultimate sacrifice for us to be able to do that. But Father, I, on, a, on a much more personal note, I pray for the individual men and women who this holiday brings up feelings of despair and sadness because they are mourning the loss of a loved one. God, is, as we know, one of the most difficult things we face in this life is death, and it was not a part of your original design and intention, but because of sin, it has entered into the world as we know it. But mourning the deaths of loved ones is an important part of our experience here just as human beings. And so I pray that if we know anybody personally, Father, that you would give us the resolve to, to love those men and women well, as they grieve the loss of a loved one. And more importantly, Lord, I pray that you would comfort them with a peace that goes beyond all understanding that only you can provide. Lord, as we search for words and the right things to say whenever someone is suffering, your spirit can do a work in someone that words can never do. And we ask that you would meet those people in this place. Father, I thank you that we can ask you this because you are a good father who loves his children and that you hear these prayers and you act because you care and because you love. So we love you, Lord. Be with us in this time as we study your word. And thank you for the men and women who have laid down their lives. And we, again, we ask that you would be with their families as they remember them this week. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for, for being here this morning. I'm excited um, because we only have a few more weeks left in the book of Romans. And so for those of you guys that have been around a while, you know that we take a while to get through a book of the Bible. Uh, that's my fault. I apologize. It's just the way that it is, right? But we've, at this point, we've studied the book of Colossians. We've studied the book of Hebrews as a church. Uh, we've studied a number of Old Testament books, including Habakkuk and some of the Psalms, among other things. Um, we've also uh, worked through the Gospel of Matthew. And now we're just about done with the book of Romans and then starting up in July, we'll probably look at a number of different Psalms again before we head into the fall. But it's exciting as we're, we're kind of coming to the closing of, of Paul's great letter uh, to, the, to the church at, at Rome. And so uh, our text this morning is gonna push us to think about how we deal with one another in the church. And I know that a couple weeks ago, we've already talked about that. If you guys remember, I, I said a couple weeks ago that Romans 1 through 5 uh, kind of tends to answer this question of what God has done and what our condition is. And then that Romans 6, 7, and 8 is th then the response to God's grace and love towards us and how we can know the joy of what Christ has done for us and how that joy is eternal because of what Christ has done, that he has both purchased us and called us as his sons, but then, and being his sons, that that calling is something to be enjoyed for eternity, but also to be enjoyed here on earth. And as we moved into chapter 12, I said that we were gonna see a shift into more practical ways that we respond to that grace that Christ has bestowed upon us. 
and that Romans 12 really kind of begins Paul's discussion on what it means um, to love one another. And that's what we've been looking at over the course of probably the last three to four weeks is uh, looking at what it means to love one another. And so um, for those of you guys that don't know me, I grew up in a traditional uh, Methodist church in Northern Virginia. Uh, I tell people all the, all the time that we were about a half, half step away from Catholicism because of how steeped in tradition my church was. Um, I actually went through a confirmation class within my tradition that was very similar to the Catholic catechism that many of my friends went through that I went to high school with. And so it, it was very traditional. I was one of those kids that wears the, the white robe and brings the cross or the, uh, the, the, uh, the fire into the room to light the candles before the service had no idea what I was doing, but my mom had signed me up for it, and so, you know, I did what mom told me to do, right? And so I'm moving in, I'm doing all these things, and I'm, we were just steeped in tradition. And I remember sometime during uh, middle school, uh, my dad was serving as an usher for the church, and he was one of those people, the, the ushers at our church were the people that uh, took up offering and then would also seat people and do things like that. They basically were just trying to help kind of keep the service organized. And, and one of the guys he served with on that particular team at the church was a family friend. And the, my, my, my church in the, in, in the mid-90s, late, you know, late 90s, started what they could, called a contemporary service. You know, nowadays, like, the, the contemporary service is kind of the normal service at churches, and it, it, we've just seen kind of over time this kind of transformation within the church. But at the time, it was kind of radical and revolutionary for a church, especially a church as steeped in tradition as my parents' church was, to allow drums and an acoustic guitar and that someone might be playing a banjo or a mandolin or, or whatever else because my church was so traditional, it was the organ and maybe a piano if you wanted to take it down a notch on Sunday morning. And so I remember as we're sitting there and we're trying to figure out what this service is going to be and the ushers were trying to organize things that my dad's friend was just really irritated that the church would change their style of worship in a new service to try to meet some people. And they call, he started calling the service and the people that attended it the hippie service. And I, and I remember, you know, I wasn't a, a follower of Jesus at this time, but he'd always be like, yeah, the hippie service, they come in and they make a mess for the real service and all of us people that love God. And, and it, it's just chaos. I can't believe our pastors would allow our church to do something like this. And I remember thinking, as he would say this and he would complain about these things, that isn't it strange that even though I was not a follower of Jesus, that something about that seemed off to me? Something about that seemed really uncharitable, really unloving, really ungracious towards people that, as a matter of fact, were technically members of the same church congregation. I know that different churches tend to love to fight with one another over doctrine or practice or mission or whatever it may be, but within the confines of the same church, which is supposed to be like a family, you still had these two groups of people that were irritated with one another simply over their choice of music and the style of worship they wanted to participate in. And I remember being so turned off to that and so irritated by that, thinking Jesus in the Gospels proclaims to his followers that they will know the glories of Christ when looking at the church because of their unity and love for one another, not their arguments over the proper way to do worship. But the reality is, 
is that all of this stems from an issue dealing with love and misunderstanding what it means to love God and love others well. Because if we love God and love others well, that love will inevitably change us. It will inevitably transform us. And that transformation will lead us to both love our enemies and love our neighbors, as we saw last week and the week before that, but it will also lead us to love our church family in ways that we can agree to disagree on matters of preference that are not drawn out clearly within the scriptures. And so Romans 14 is going to specifically challenge the church at Rome on how to love one another in the midst of a disagreement on preference. Now I need to, I need to throw some things out here first because whenever we start getting into scripture and start trying to understand what God's word might be saying to us, what it might have for us, we need to make sure that we draw a line on what is for us, what is specific for the church at Rome, and then what can we take away even though something might specifically be for a a specific group of people, right? Remember that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome, meaning he has a, a particular and specific disagreement and issue in mind with the church at Rome. So as he's addressing this issue, he's addressing it for that congregation and those specific people. Now, when we see something like this in the scripture, though, there is still the ability for us to say, well, there's a principle being taught here on how we are to relate with one another. Now here's the funny thing, because I think in Gainesville especially, this could be something that we would face, that's similar to the church at Rome. The issue in the church at Rome is whether to eat meat or not. Now, for full disclosure, I love meat. Pretty much all of it. Bacon, beef, raccoon, because I'm from near West Virginia, they eat that kind of stuff squirrel, deer, bison, you name it, right? I think it probably tastes delicious, especially if it's seasoned, marinated, etc., properly and not burned the way my parents often cooked our meat growing up. But the church in Rome is dealing with some issues that both stem from preference, past, and also kind of some Jewish religious traditions and rules that they were faced with. And I would say this, some of us in this room were going to be laughing, like, why in the world were they fighting over whether you could eat meat or not? Like, it's not that big of a deal. In Gainesville, we've got vegetarian options, non-vegetarian options, full-on meat options, vegan options, which is different than vegetarian, which I didn't know until I moved here. Right, that there's all these different kind of dietary rules and restrictions that we can follow and look at. And it seems kind of silly, like, why would you fight over something like that? Guys, we're not that different from the Church of Rome, though. Right, the church today might not be fighting over meat, although there probably are some. But the church today fights over music, dancing, alcohol, dress, Bible translations, you name it. We fight over it. Right, you've got King James-only churches. You've got churches that will only use uh, tr uh, translations that come out of their denominational tradition. You've got churches that will only use certain type of instruments for music. You've got people saying that there needs to be a certain way to dress, to worship the Lord. And you have traditions and churches that think dancing was created by Satan himself. Which is interesting because anytime I see David worshiping in the Psalms, he seems to break out and dance. Now, what kind of dance, I'm not sure, but he was definitely breaking out in dance. And so what we're going to see from Paul this morning in Romans 14 is how do we love one another well 
in the midst of disagreement on matters of preference or where God has not spoken clearly. So look at the text with me. We're going to look at the first three verses to start here in Romans chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Okay, so Paul makes a statement there in verse one. Right, if someone is weak, do not fight with them, but accept them. Because the goal is unity within the body of Christ to grow together. Now, Paul's gonna talk about two different groups of people throughout Romans chapter 14 and into Romans chapter 15. He's gonna talk about the weak people and the strong people, okay? And we need to kind of understand what he means by that. So when he says weak there, the Greek means to lack strength or to be diseased. That's, that's literally what the Greek means. And so what Paul is saying there, he's not talking about the physical strength of the, the particular group of people that will not eat meat. What he's referring to is that there are some people within the body of Christ who are saved and do know Jesus as Savior and Lord, but they do not understand the implications of what Jesus has freed them from and what Jesus has freed them to. What I mean by that is if, if someone is in Christ, they've been saved by their, 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 from their sins because of the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. That Jesus has both saved you out of sin but he's also saved you to a life of worship, holiness, and obedience. Right? I think one of the, the major issues we kind of have in the church in the U.S. right now is we know what we're saved from, but we often forget what we're saved to. And what, what Paul is saying here is that these weak Christians, as the terminology he's using, right, are struggling to fully understand what Jesus has saved them to but also what Jesus has saved them from, that they don't fully understand the, the magnitude of what Jesus frees them to do in worshiping him. So Paul is saying this, if you notice someone who you would consider to be weak in the faith, don't bicker or belittle them, welcome them. Participate in the worship of Christ with them. Do life with them. Right? No matter what the dispute is, in this particular case, right, it's eating meat. Right? They would only eat vegetables while the strong would eat anything. The goal is to bring unity to the body of Christ. Now, I want to pause for a minute because you may be wondering, like, why in the world were they worried about eating meat in the first place? Right? Remember that, that, that Rome was, an, like, at this time, pretty much an international city. And so you had different cultures, different religious backgrounds, and, and, and various people from all over the world living in Rome that were coming to know Jesus as Savior and then moving into this city and trying to figure out how to be a church family together. And so it's going to create some issues. And particularly, right, I would say that co common issues would be either former people that had worshipped in, in, in temples that sacrificed meat to idols. Oftentimes when you got meat from the market, it had been sacrificed in a temple first. 
And there were people that had a moral and conscious dilemma on whether it was okay to eat that meat. That, hey, this was sacrificed to Zeus, or this was sacrificed to Poseidon, or, or this was sacrificed to some other Roman or Greek god. I don't feel comfortable eating this meat because it's been sacrificed to a false god or idol. On the, on the other hand, you also had people from Israel who there was a whole list of dietary restrictions upon their life before they came to know Christ and therefore are gonna struggle to eat certain meats because their entire life they've been told that that is disrespectful and sinful to partake in eating those meats. And so the question would be like, why would they even fight over this in the first place? Ultimately, right, it ties to an understanding of what it means to be obedient to God and to worship him. And so, one of the first things that we know that God says on the issue, though, comes from this understanding. Anytime we have a disagreement with somebody within the church on an issue such as this one in Rome, right? Should I eat the meat or not? Should I go to a dance or not? Can I wear this clothing or is it, un- is it unacceptable? Not permissible by scripture, right? The first thing we need to understand is that our first standard and our final standard is the word of God. If, if we come to a disagreement within the church on, on whether something is permissible or not, our first standard is, well, what does God's word say about it? If God's word speaks to an issue, we listen to what his word has to say. So let me, let me give you an example, right? It is not okay for us as a church to have an argument on whether it is okay for us to decide to start stealing things from other people to be able to pay our bills, right? Because God's word has clearly spoken that stealing is sinful and wrong. Meaning there shouldn't be a debate between this side of the room with this side of the room on whether it is permissible for us as Christians to steal things from other people, no matter what our purposes may be. Right? It's like, oh, well, I, you know, my, my, my thought is like, this is kind of like Robin Hood. I steal from the rich to give back to the poor, so that makes it okay. The moral imperative within Scripture is that it's not. That's, that stealing in and of itself is a sin and an affront to the Lord. And therefore, we walk in obedience, but not every issue is going to be discussed at length in the scripture. And when God's word is silent on something, it means therefore that we walk together as brothers and sisters with freedom to decide what we think is wise and good and holy. And so the church at Rome, right, walks into this dilemma on is eating meat sinful or not? So let's, let's start there. What does God's word have to say about eating meat? Go with me uh, first to Mark chapter 7. Uh, I, want to, to, I want us to look at um, Jesus' words uh, to his disciples here in regards to, to our dietary restrictions. Look at what he says starting in verse 14 of Mark chapter 7. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Right, tracking what Jesus is saying there, he's like, look, there's nothing in creation that is just inherently evil or sinful. Then look what he says next. 
And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Go ahead and throw up Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 for me as well. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, right? So God's word seems to be clear that the observance of these certain holidays, that the eating of these meats that used to be considered sinful before Christ, according to Old Testament dietary restrictions and law, are no longer considered a direct sin or affront to God. That Christians, followers of Christ, are now free, if they so choose, to enjoy and partake in these things. According to Jesus, right, we're free to eat. So it can't be inherently sinful the way that stealing is. That it's not inherently evil for you to partake in eating of the unclean meats as they would be known in the Levitical law. Now, I don't know about you guys. For me, I told you guys earlier, I'm a meat eater. I'm excited about that. Like, I love to be able to eat some good old pork barbecue, right? Adam's Rib is one of my favorite places here in town if you want some good meat. I know some of you guys like Four Rivers. You're wrong. It's okay. I love you, but you're wrong. (laughs) Adam's is the place here in town, right? I got a bunch of amens there. I love that. See you at Adam's after church. Actually, they're closed on Sunday. I'll see you tomorrow. Right, the reality is this though, right? That as thankful as I may be, right, God has declared it's okay to eat those things, but here is, here is something we need to understand for those that are like me, like meat-eating, card-carrying carnivores. That although we are free, not everyone is going to feel the same way about this. Not everyone is gonna come to this same conclusion. And what is going on in Rome is this, that although there are that we are free to eat meat, that there are many specifically Jewish men and women in this congregation who have spent their entire lives trying to follow God's dietary law. They're going to struggle with whether this is okay or not. I used to think it was crazy. Like, how could someone who's done something a certain way and then find out that they're free not to do that anything struggle with going back to those things until I've started getting older? Right? And the older I get, and I know it's funny because I'm only in my early 30s, but I'm already, I love you college students, I'm already getting irritated with some of you guys. <laughs> I love you to death, I do. You keep me young, it's great. But I see you guys do some things, and I'm like, why in the world, what? Why would you do that? Well, we, well it's not, set, it doesn't say in Scripture that I can't do that. You know, it doesn't say in Scripture that I, that I can't, that, that it's wrong for me to, to stay up all night and play video games and never sleep again. Well, you're right. It's also stupid. (laughs) Right? Just because God's word doesn't say something is wrong or evil doesn't mean that it's wise or good. 
But what God's word is saying here that in those moments or issues that are not clearly communicated as being sinful, that we need to walk with a attitude of humility and love towards one another instead of an attitude of judgment and condemnation towards one another. I love how Tim Keller defines the weak Christian here in Romans 14, right? This is what he says. A weak Christian is any Christian who tends to promote and regard non-essential cultural and ceremonial customs as being critical for Christian maturity and effectiveness. What he means by that is if God has not commanded us to do something as a follower of Christ, to hold someone else to that standard is to be weak-minded, right? If, if, let me give you an example, right? Some of us in this room just have very vibrant and fervent prayer lives, right? And, and you get up every morning before the sun even rises and you're praying all morning long. And I think that is something to be commended and celebrated. But it is not a command of God that every person in this church follow your exact routine on prayer. It is not, some of us love the read through the Bible reading plans through the year, while some of us just like to jump around and read whatever we want, right? For those like me that are part of a reading plan, it is not okay for me to demand of you to do the exact same reading plan of me or to condemn you because you won't follow it. Right, that these are matters of preference and understanding that preference and how to respond to that preference with one another will indicate far more of our love for one another and our unity in Christ than actually just simply being obedient to something. If every single one of us did the exact same thing, we would have proved that we can all follow the same routine, but it doesn't mean we all have a fervent love for Christ. And that in the gray areas as we try to work through this with maturity and effectiveness, we seek to make much of God. I would just say this too, and this is one of the things that I find funny in this particular passage, right? Do you find it weird that the people that are abstaining from eating meat are the ones that are called weak? I, I find that to be super just like bizarre. And here's why, right? Most of the time when we consider someone to be really holy or love the Lord, they're the ones that are super disciplined and have it all together, right? They're, they're, they're up at the crack of dawn reading their Bible and praying. They're fervently doing things. They're abstaining from things that they would consider sinful. And yet in this particular case, you have these holy people, right, who are convinced of the importance of abstaining from eating meat so that they might worship God, and yet you have Paul calling them what? Weak. And this is not gonna always be the case, but Paul is talking about a weakness in understanding the magnitude of what Christ has done for you, not in your personal disciplines. Right? If, you, if, you've, read, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians chapter eight, right, Paul actually goes into a little bit more depth on this. Right, where he talks about in the church at Corinth, the argument is over eating meat, but specifically eating meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul goes so far as to say, hey, look, it's okay to eat that meat that's been sacrificed to Poseidon or Zeus. Poseidon and Zeus are fake. Who cares? They're not real. Eat it. Go for it. And yet, if you have a brother or a sister who is convinced that eating that meat is wrong, you should lay down your preference to worship with them instead. 
right? The entire mindset in all of this is one of humility and taking into account the other person's feelings over what you might consider to be the most holy or right or good option in any given situation, right? Look, look specifically at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses uh, 10 through 13. I just want to read those verses because I think it'll give us some context to understanding what Paul is saying here in Romans 14. Look at that with me. For if anyone sees you, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat the food offered to idols? He's like, look, if, if, if you feel it's okay to eat that food and they don't, but you do, and then you do it, right? And they see you eating it. They're gonna be encouraged to do so even though they, they are not convinced that it's right or wrong. Look at what he says in verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. You see the magnitude of humility that Paul is talking about there? He would rather, even though he feels free to do so, never eat meat again. Because if meat, if eating meat in front of his brothers and sisters in Corinth causes them to stumble, he would prefer not to do so. Right? Guys, let me give you a, a prime example, especially since we're primarily younger in here. Right? Almost always the hot button issue for college-aged people in their 20 issues is, is the issue of alcohol. Right? Is it okay for me to drink? Is it not okay for me to drink? The Bible seems to be pretty clear that, that God neither views alcohol as inherently sinful, but also gives some pretty consistent guidelines on consuming alcohol, right? Not to be overcome with it, not to drink too much. Right? But one thing I would remind you is this, right? we as a church don't have an official stance on, on whether we would say alcohol is, is wrong or right, or we would just say that we, we think God's word seems to say that it's okay. But something happened at this church in the very, very early days that I'll never forget, and I'm gonna share it with you. After a Bible study one night, a few of the guys that, that lived in the house in that Bible study went out to the front porch with a couple of other guys and, and got some beers out, and we're just drinking a beer or two. Completely harmless. Right? It's like not a big deal. No one was getting drunk. They were, just, they were free to do so. There was a man in that Bible study at that time that had an abusive and alcoholic father in his past. And by drinking in front of him and not taking care for that, they hurt him deeply. And it took time to repair that friendship and that relationship and have to come in and do some counseling and work through those things. Right? And so what Paul is talking about here in Romans 14 is, Guys, we need to be a lot better at recognizing who is around us and exercising our freedoms in a way that's gonna bring glory to God and bring unity together. Right, and after I talked to the guys that had, had drank that alcohol in front of him, guess what? They were heartbroken that they had hurt him. Right, they apologized to him, they repented of it, and I never once saw them drink a beer at a, at a at an event that had anyone from the church at it ever again. Was it sinful for them to drink alcohol? Even maybe even around brothers and sisters in Christ? No, I don't, I don't see anything in scripture that says that implicitly it's wrong for them to do so. 
but it caused one of their brothers to stumble, stumble and offended him, and, and therefore it caused them to repent before him because they had done so. Right? This is what we're talking about here. Now, here's the problem with the stances on these issues, right? Because I, I, I think, right, you're probably going to find, from issue to issue, you're going to find yourself in one of those two, in one of these two camps. Right? Almost everyone has an opinion on anything, right? If you don't believe me, get on Facebook. And in seeing this, right, you know, you may say one person, oh, well, he eats meat, but he thinks dancing's evil, right? We, we teeter in between these two different sides of the argument all the time, right? He loves contemporary music, uh, but he thinks alcohol's evil, right? All, we teeter back and forth between those two things. There's not just a, a, a way that people tend to respond, and so what we need to understand instead is the language that Paul is using and help us to understand what he means by strong and what he means by weak and, and the pitfalls we can fall into in each of these two categories. Right, because the reality is, is here's, here in, in Paul's example in Romans 14, the strong Christians right, are the ones that are, are strong in their faith and they believe that they're free to enjoy this meat to the glory of God. God, you created these animals and we can partake and eat of them and it is actually joyful and we can worship you in thankfulness and glorify your name because I can eat a pig. But typically, right, what comes with that freedom amongst that group of strong people, and I know this is true if you find yourself in that category because I'm one of you, is we tend to stand around them and look at those that won't partake and we look down on them that abstain. What's wrong with them? Why are they so legalistic? Why are they, you know, why are they so stuck up? Have they ever had bacon? It's fantastic. Right? The primary I see this is, is I come from a tradition now from seminary, the Southern Baptist um, uh, denomination. And Southern Baptists fight over dancing like crazy. And I, fi- and I, I can't figure it out. I personally hate dancing, but that's because I'm bad at it, not because I have a moral imperative against it. I've got one dance move. I'll show it to you guys. It goes like this. That's it. All right, there you go. Jackie is mortified right now. Look at my wife. I have embarrassed her for eternity. That move is called Old Faithful. It's copyrighted and trademark protected in all 50 states. I love you, sweetheart. She is mortified right now. I love it. Right? I'm terrible at dancing, so I'm like, why would you want to dance? But there are people that enjoy it. There are people that are good at it. By the way, I, all right, here's a quick story. My, my wife loves dancing, and I bought us dancing lessons, right, in our first year of marriage. I'm not kidding. I'm, my, this is what our dance instructor said to us. I'm not making this up. You, you can confirm with my wife after. He, he looks at me and says, you are the first student who has gotten worse over time in our lessons. <laughs> You can't make that up, right? I, like, we, we, we had like one-on-one sessions with this guy, and I got worse from lesson to lesson. Right? He's like, dude, you're done. Right? He, I'm not kidding. By the fourth time we went, he started dancing with my wife so they could do the stuff that they were supposed to be doing because I couldn't do it anymore. Right? But no matter what, right, you know, wherever you stand on a particular issue, for me, right, I don't have anything against dancing other than I just don't like it. But within my tradition, right, and where I went to seminary, people would just argue about this like crazy. Right, like Satan himself has gotten into your heart because you're allowing dancing, right? And then me on the other side, I'm looking like, what is wrong with these people? They're being tools of Satan to rob people of freedom. And all that's created there, you notice how none, none of either side in that conversation is interested in working together to glorify God as a group. They're interested in being right. 
the side that says dancing is sinful, right, and an affront to God is interested in projecting their holiness and puffing themselves up. And the side that says that dancing is okay and that it's an affront, it's not an affront to God, but it's actually enjoying him and being free in what God has created us to do is interested in puffing up their own position and being right. And neither side is interested in making much of God. And so the strong side looks down on the weak and wants to speak about how they don't want to enjoy the freedoms that Christ has given them. And the weak side, I've seen this as well, right? The the strongest thing I see them struggle with is they they tend to condemn the strong. Well, they don't really love the Lord. If you partake in drinking alcohol, you don't really love God. If you want to dance, you don't really love God. You claim to but you don't really love God, right? They believe that the others are sinning and they're on a crusade for obedience. And in the midst of all this, what is lost is unity in the glory of Christ and what he's freed us to as a family to enjoy and work through together. Now, there's a better way. There's a better way to deal with these issues, right? This week, we're going to focus on the weak, right, in the text. Next week, we'll look at the strong because Paul's got words for both sides, right? So here's what I want to focus on this morning. If you struggle with weakness, if you're particular, if you kind of notice, I tend to be more so, no, God's word says we can't do this. God's word says we must be this way. It's wrong for us to do this. I want you to think through some of what Paul's going to be saying in the remainder of our text this morning so that you might seek to live in step with what God's word says, and unity with your brothers and sisters. For those of you guys that tend to to err on the side of strength and everything's free and we can do anything to glorify God, don't worry, we're gonna get to you next week, okay? But for those that struggle with weakness, or here's another thing, guys. If you struggle with being on the strong side in this room this morning, you need to understand where your brothers and sisters are coming from and this will help you as well. Because arguing with them is probably not going to work, okay? Understanding them and walking through life with them will work. Let's look at the text. Verse three. If you struggle with being weak in faith or weak in freedoms to do certain things to the glory of God, here's Paul's charge to you starting in in verse three. Number one, remember the other person's identity. Right, look at verse three. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. I want you to look at that last line there. What? For God has what? Welcomed him. Right, Paul's saying, God has welcomed him or her as a a daughter or son into his kingdom. They're his. The one that you are passing judgment on is a son or daughter of God. Who are you to pass judgment on them? Who are you to tell them they don't belong to him? Who are you to condemn? This is God's son or daughter. Right, you know, it's funny as a parent, right? I'm pretty hard on my kids, especially my oldest. Like, like wanting them to be respectful and to obey and discipline. You know what's funny though? Sometimes, like, if I see other people kind of, like, trying to step in and discipline my kids and they don't do it in a way that I want them to, I get ticked off, 
right? And Jackie kind of like pulls me back and is like, relax, man. Like they were doing the exact same thing you would do. And I'm like, but they're not their parents. This is what God's saying, right? He is the father, not us. We're not doing the parenting here, right? I, I like my kids are in this phase right now. Jackie's, I, I, I'm surprised she hasn't pulled all of her hair out at this point, right? But we'll correct one of the boys for doing something to their brother and the other one will verbatim copy exactly what we just said to the kid and try to parent them. Exactly. I'll be like, I'll be like, Gideon, stop taking th- that toy from your brother. It's wrong for you to do that. You're stealing. And then I'll hear Josiah, yeah, Gideon, stop that. I'm like, dude, you are sinful enough on your own. You do not need to be parenting your brother. You worry about yourself right now and you let mom and dad do the parenting. Guys, as a church, we tend to be like my kids. Right? God declares something to us in a way to respond to him, and we turn around, right, if we feel like God's word is right, and we start yelling and pointing fingers at the other person, like, ha ha, dad got you. It's not at all what the church is supposed to look like. It'd be better if Josiah turned to Gideon and said, Gideon, I still love you. It's okay, let's figure out how to play together. Now, my kids are heathens, so that's not the way it works right now. (laughs) My long-term goal is that they will do that. Right, but Paul is saying here in verse three, the first way you start to work through your own weakness and faith is you remember who the other person is and who they belong to. And that's to the same God and King who bought you with his own flesh and blood. They belong to Christ. Number two, look at verse four. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So number, number one is to remember who the other person's identity is in. Number two is to remember who God is. Right, some of you thought I was going to tell you that, that it was only God who could pass judgment, and that is true. But what Paul is saying there in verse four is remember who the Lord is. Look at what he says at the end of verse four. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. If you are condemning of another because of their freedoms and you condemn them for their lifestyle or whatever decisions they may be where they feel free to worship Christ in a particular way, shape, or form, not only are you judging that brother, but you show a complete lack of faith in God's ability to, to both shepherd and father that son or daughter. You are basically saying to God, right? It, let, let's use an example, right? Let's use contemporary worship music. To say that a group of, of believers is sinful for loving contemporary worship music because it's not as rich as hymns or older music or whatever it may be, not only are you judging them as a son or daughter of God, but you're also saying to God, I don't trust you enough to be leading them with the Holy Spirit. You haven't done a good job, God. You did a great job with me. I've got it all figured out, but you don't know what, but this person doesn't know what's going on, God. You're not doing your job. Doesn't it sound outrageous for me to even say that out loud? But if you follow it to its logical conclusion, that's exactly what we're doing. And Paul is saying in verse four, look, remember who God is. God is king and God saves. 
as I think about my own testimony and the people that had a major impact on my life and revealing Christ to me, none of them in the end are responsible for my salvation though. My sister had a profound impact on me hearing the gospel. She's not who saved me. My praying grandmothers and my praying mom and my praying grandfathers had a profound impact on me. They don't get the glory for me being saved. My wife was praying for my salvation before she ever knew who I was because she was in a Bible study with my sister. And I'm so thankful for that. But she doesn't get credit for my salvation. The glory goes to God because God is the one who saves and that is what Paul is trying to get across here. Guys, God is sovereign. Let's let him be sovereign. Let's let him act like God. Let's let him be God and trust him in that. Number three, read verse five with me. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He says, guys, when we're dealing with these issues and you can't find clear evidence in scripture to prove your point or disprove the other person's point, Remember that this is a matter of preference. And in matters of preference, you need to be convinced on where you stand, but you need to understand that it could be different for someone else. And know that. Be mature enough to look at certain issues and understand, hey, this may just be my preference. I had a pastor friend in Richmond who, after a couple, he planted a church and after a couple years of planting that church just, just decided that it was better for their church to merge with another church in Richmond. That was gonna be better for the maturity of the congregation. It was gonna be better for the other congregation because it was gonna bring some youth and vitality to the congregation. And so he brought that together. And I remember talking to him at one point just saying like, hey, like how's that transition been? Because you're basically taking two families and just, putting them together, and each one had kind of its own style and its way of doing things, and he said, you know, theologically, we're all on the same page, but our theology of preference is being rubbed for both congregations, right? One congregation's mad because we used to do three songs before the sermon, the other congregation did four, and we're doing both, and now both sides are angry. He's like, and what we're trying to remind our people of is that in matters of preference, we can be convinced, but we also need to remember that the greater good is the glory of God and to seek his glory, and to seek unity with one another. Number four, verse six. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And what he's talking about is the Sabbath, or the way that we observe the Sabbath day. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to him. Here's what he's saying in verse six. Remember that whatever conclusion you come to on a matter of preference, to do so to worship God, not to be right. If you're choosing to enjoy eating meat, in this particular example, do so and glorify God that you are now free to enjoy that meat. Worship him and thank him, but because of Christ, you are able to do so. If you are choosing to abstain and you think that that's gonna draw you closer to the Lord by abstaining meat, glorify in Christ that you are free to abstain because you don't need it and that you honor him in abstaining from that meat. That any decision you make should not be centered around whether you are right and the other person is wrong, but should be centered around what's gonna bring the most glory to God, and then live that out. 
Live out that choice that you make to the glory of God, not to argue and create disunity in Christ's church. And then look at the final charge that he gives here in verses 9 through 13. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. And every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Look, here's what he's he's saying. He says, guys, I know you want to argue over this. Christ died and rose again to save both the one who eats the meat and the one who abstains from it. He died for both. And Christ saved the one who eats the meat and abstains from it. And God judges based upon our response to him, the one who eats the meat and who abstains from it. But I want you to look at one specific line in there. Because as I said earlier, the strong side and the weak side both are centered around when making these decisions themselves. And look at what Paul says. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to who? Me. Guys, if you're a vegetarian, there is no one in heaven that will bow to you for being a vegetarian. If you're a card-carrying carnivore like myself, it's alliteration right there, by the way, isn't it? There is not one person in heaven. My wife's laughing at me again. I just love it. Every time she's, I embarrass her again. There's not one person in the kingdom of heaven that's gonna bow before me because I was free to eat meat. When the king of kings stands before you, you will worship him. You will bow to him. You will confess his name because he's worthy. Guys, here's what all this ties to. How are we saved? Are you saved by enjoying meat and therefore by your performance you're somehow more holy than others because you get to enjoy what God has declared unclean? Are you saved because you abstain from eating meat and you're therefore more holy so God might accept you? No. That's why Paul says that Christ died for both. You are only a child of God because of Christ. There is no other way. I don't care how holy you are, how unholy you are. In Christ, you are made holy because the flesh of God and the blood of Jesus was poured out for your sins. And as Christ hung there from the cross, he wasn't there because he was some political martyr. He wasn't there because he had taught things that were improper to Jewish tradition, although Jews might have you believe that. He was there because the wrath of God for your sin and my rebellion towards the Father was being poured out on Jesus. That as Christ hung on the cross, the wrath of God was being satisfied in totality. And that as Jesus suffered for my sin and rebellion, he gives to me his righteousness. 
him being the son of the most high God and living in light of God's law obediently, he credits that to me. And he proved that once and for all, sin and death were put to shame by raising from the dead. And Jesus now, who is alive and reigning in heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for me, petitioning to God on my behalf, saying, Kevin is yours. I died for him. Kevin is yours because your wrath was satisfied when you poured it out on me. Not because of Kevin's performance. Not because I partake in meat or abstain from meat. But because of Jesus. There's none like him. Right? The goal of worship is to make much of him and to worship him. And when we allow issues of preference to point us away from that, we lose sight of what Christ has done. And we as a church, if we need to this morning as we see this, if we see ourselves in these situations, might we repent of them and turn instead to Christ to make much of him? In a moment here, we're gonna, we're gonna take communion. We do that every week here at Aletheia. All right, and as I, as I tell you guys, communion is an opportunity for us to worship. Right, I remember as a kid, right, when I took my first communion in my church, which I should not have done because I was not a follower of Jesus, right, but, but we would take communion and it was just this like contrite act where you were told to just feel so bad about what you had done and so sorrowful and that you should have this attitude of humility and sorrow as you took communion. And, and I don't think that's sufficient because what we're doing when we take communion is, yes, we repent of sin, right? Paul calls us to repent of sin and go to a brother or a sister and reconcile before we would take communion. But then when we come up and we take communion, we take the bread and we take the juice and we rejoice that Jesus willingly poured out his own flesh and blood for our forgiveness of sins. And we thank him and we rejoice and we can go back to our seats and we can sing songs of praise to the glory of God for what he has done. Communion is an opportunity to worship Jesus and thank him for giving up his own life for ours. And as I always say and I ask, if you're not a follower of Christ here this morning, first of all, thank you for being here. I hope that hearing the word of God has encouraged you this morning and I would encourage you to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus for forgiveness because he's the only way. But I would also encourage you that if you're not a follower of Christ here this morning, don't take communion because it doesn't represent the same thing for you that it does for a follower of Christ. Right, this is an act of worship for those that follow Jesus as God and King. And taking communion is our response of worship to what Jesus has done. And so I'm gonna pray for us here in just a moment. I'm gonna pray that God might encourage us to repent of any sin, that he might lead us if need be to reconcile to a brother or sister over the very things that we talked about this morning. Maybe there's an issue of preference that you're holding too closely and you've been un. Uh, unthankful for, that you've been ungrateful towards others for, that maybe you haven't walked in humility, maybe you've been ungracious towards a brother and sister and you need to reconcile before you take communion. But if your conscience is clear that you would pray, you would thank Christ for giving his own flesh and blood for you and rising again from the grave to continue to intercede for you. And you would come up and you would take communion joyfully and you would worship Jesus because that's why we're here, to make much of him. Jesus is worthy. Let us worship him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you that this is all because of you. It was your good and perfect plan to send your son to be poured out for my sin and rebellion and the sin and rebellion of all who might be called. Father, might you in your grace and love towards us lead us to humility and obedience, to holiness and worship. May we as a church be marked by unity and love for you, not by how good our theology is or how great we are at performing in holiness. Father, if we're the weak-minded brother or sister this morning that we saw in scripture, forgive us. Father, forgive me for my judgmentalness. For when I might look at a, a brother or sister and a choice that they might make and I might condemn them or look down on them, Father, forgive me. And lead me to walk in a, in a posture of thankfulness towards them. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that I can look at my own wretchedness. And in that, still know that I am loved and accepted in you because of the work of Christ. May we never cease to declare the glories and the riches of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we love you. May we continue to worship you with our lives, both in this time and as we leave today. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.